To make a donation, visit biblicallycorrectpodcast.org slash donate. And if you enjoyed this episode, please like, share, and subscribe. Thank you for your support. This is what's holding you back from bearing the standard of Scripture. Welcome to the Biblically Correct Podcast. Shalom, y'all. This is the Biblically Correct Podcast, teaching biblical correctness in a biblically incorrect world. My name is Kevin Jeffrey. I'm a Jewish follower of the Messiah Yeshua, Jesus, and I love teaching the scriptures. In the previous episode, I talked about what it means to bear the standard of scripture and how our only choice as true followers of the Messiah Yeshua is to admit that the Bible alone is sufficient and supreme for establishing our values, determining our beliefs, and dictating the boundaries of our behavior. That the scriptures are the sole objective standard by which we may find, fix upon, and follow the Master Yeshua. But as I talk about extensively in my book, Bearing the Standard, a rallying cry to uphold the scriptures, there are hostile influences at work that you are likely allowing in your life that are keeping you from effectively bearing the standard of scripture. Today, we'll be looking at those hostile influences and showing how they lead us astray from following the word of God. And then we'll wrap everything up in the next episode with a challenge to align your daily life with the Bible and to be a true standard bearer for the word of God. And again, you can pick up a copy of the book at order.bearingthestandard.org. That's order.bearingthestandard.org. Now, as I mentioned in the last episode, my book was inspired by the teachings of 19th century Irish preacher C.H. McIntosh, who presciently identified these hostile influences that are extremely efficient at diverting us from faithfully upholding the scriptures. McIntosh believed that denying the sufficiency and supremacy of the Bible, the sole authority of scripture, is a fundamental attack on the sufficiency and supremacy of God himself. He said, we hold it to be nothing short of positive blasphemy to assert that the Bible is not sufficient or that we are compelled to travel outside its covers to find ample guidance and instruction. In other words, he's saying that when we seek out and listen to other voices of influence to provide us guidance about how to live our lives as believers in Yeshua, we're saying that God's own words aren't enough that every scripture that was breathed onto the page by God himself is insufficient. And that's why we need to be on guard against those hostile influences that draw our focus away from the standard of scripture and shield and obscure its perfect light from our eyes. Now, Macintosh names three overarching influences that are hostile to the Bible. And the first one he singles out is tradition what I call Scripture's fallible interpreter. Now, simply having traditions in and of itself is morally neutral. Whether we're talking about family traditions, cultural traditions, religious traditions, or just the general handing down of beliefs and customs, we all operate with a certain set of routines and tradition. But when it comes to bearing the standard of Scripture, the reason tradition is considered hostile is because of its ability to fail us as a guide for life. As Macintosh puts it, we meet, it may be, with a tradition which seems very authentic, very venerable, well worthy of respect and confidence, and we commit ourselves to its guidance, but directly have we done so 
another tradition crosses our path, putting forth quite as strong claims on our confidence and leading us in quite an opposite direction. So while tradition presents a face of certainty and stability, in reality, it's actually wildly erratic. In contrast with Scripture, which is the immutable written word of God, tradition isn't beholden to the limitations and governance of the Bible. Tradition can choose to indulge in its slow reconstruction over time, potentially setting itself at odds with its own past and predecessors. So what tradition puts forward as authentic and confidence-worthy may in fact be in conflict with itself. But more than that, it may also find itself standing against the only certain, truly stable and objective guide we have, the Word of God. This conflict is easily seen in the confrontation between Yeshua and the Jewish religious leaders in Matthew 15, verses 2 through 3, when they challenge the Master, saying, Why do your disciples sidestep the tradition of the elders? And Yeshua immediately responds with a rebuke. Why also do you sidestep the command of God because of your tradition? And in the parallel passage in Mark 7, verse 8, he adds, Having put away the command of God, you hold to the tradition of men. So the division here couldn't be any sharper. On one side are the traditions of men, as upheld by the religious leaders and multitudes. On the other side is the Messiah, standing alone in defense of the word of God. But the issue that Yeshua took with the traditions had nothing to do with whether they had any legitimate basis in Scripture, or whether they were culturally acceptable even without a scriptural basis, or their supposed authenticity or usefulness, or even their widespread observance. The problem, as Yeshua saw it, was that the traditions and the advocates of those traditions had inadvertently usurped or were deliberately posing as God's authority. By calling out the Jewish religious leaders, Yeshua was exposing the great pains they took to preserve their own practices and maintain the illusion that they were obeying God. This is the inevitable result when we trust in tradition as a reliable guide for anything other than tradition. As an assistant to the scriptures, tradition will eventually lead us astray, and we'll find ourselves opposed to the word of God. So, for example, we're relying on tradition rather than scripture, not just when we carry on long-established doctrines and religious customs, thinking they'll make our faith more authentic or bring us closer to God, but also in the course of our normal, everyday lives, when we trust government or charitable organizations to meet society's needs, or rely on cultural norms to define acceptable public behavior and sexual identity, or look to educational institutions to prepare our children for the future, or depend on professional clergy to motivate and direct us concerning God's will for our lives. All of these, when you think about it, are really nothing more than just traditions. And though they may or may not have been more in line with the Bible at one time, as they change, in order to continue to embrace them, we need to skirt around or ignore the relevant teachings of Scripture, which tell us to think and behave otherwise. So tradition, then, is an influence that's hostile to bearing the standard of Scripture because it enables us to put away or sidestep the command of God. 
It's an unreliable guide and fallible interpreter of the Bible because it has the self-governing permission to lead us in any direction it chooses. The second influence that Macintosh considers to be hostile to Scripture is what he calls expediency, which in this context means shortcutting Scripture for the sake of doing good. Macintosh puts it this way, Accepted by too many of the people of God, expediency is the very attractive plea of doing all the good we can without due attention to the way in which that good is done. Now, this concept is a little harder to grasp, so let's turn again to Yeshua for an illustration. In Mark 7, verses 10 through 13, the master exposes the expediency in the hearts of the Jewish religious leaders when he confronts them for teaching the people to withhold things from their families in order to give more gifts or offerings to God. Yeshua says to them, For Moshe said, Honor your father and your mother. But you say that if a man says to his father or to his mother, whatever you may be benefited out of what is mine is already promised as a gift to God, no longer do you allow him to do anything for his father or mother, thus setting aside the word of God. And you do many such things like this. So again, Yeshua is juxtaposing the scriptures against the instruction and actions of the Jewish religious leaders and demonstrating how the two are incompatible. The Pharisees and scribes were teaching people that in order to do good, in this case, something good for God, it's sometimes necessary to trample the scriptures. In this case, God's own explicit commands to honor one's parents. In other words, they were telling their followers to give offerings to God, like meat, produce, or articles of gold and silver, but at the expense of the benefit to their own families. So when we realize what's at play in this example, then we can see how the voice of expediency can convince us to directly disobey God. The voice says to us, well, doesn't scripture command us to give offerings to God? Yes, it does. And isn't it good to give as much as we can to him? Of course it is. So then, shouldn't our devotion to God be more important than other things, including the way we treat our family? And that's expediency. Doing all the good we can without due attention to the way in which that good is done. The leaders were taking a shortcut past the scriptures to honor one's parents and were using the scriptural commands for giving offerings to God as a pretext for what they wanted. They were more concerned about the tangible results of getting those offerings than taking care of people and upholding the word of God. They were compromising the integrity of the scriptures in one place in order to pervert the scriptural commands from another place that promoted their agenda. So expediency, then, is when we do so-called good according to one part of the scriptures, but take a shortcut through another part of the scriptures in order to do it. Put another way, when we're under the influence of expediency, we're prone to compromise and ignore the scriptures that we personally find most troubling so that we can accomplish and celebrate the scriptures that we personally find most gratifying. Now, obviously, it's expected of us as believers in Messiah to do and be good. But expediency is a perversion of that godly characteristic. 
The problem is that regardless of any good intentions we might have, even for a scriptural good, if it's done at the expense of God's word, it amounts to disobedience. So, for example, we're following the path of expediency rather than scripture when our men work long hours to provide for their households while neglecting their family's spiritual and emotional needs. Or our women assume leadership in their homes and congregations under the pretext of men's failure to fulfill their headship roles. Or we continue doing business with companies that advance immoral causes because we desire to keep consuming their products. Or when we leave it up to congregational youth programs and workers to disciple and spiritually impart to our children. Or, in order to appear more relevant to an increasingly unbiblical generation, we imitate the world in the hopes of reaching it for Messiah. Expediency undermines the scriptures because it persuades us to justify doing what we convince ourselves pleases God at the expense of what the scriptures tell us he wants. And once our passions and doubts pervert the desire to please God into justification for pleasing ourselves, we only have to overcome the last remaining obstacle to our self-deception, the scriptures, and expediency has suddenly delivered us to a most pleasing place. So expediency, then, is an influence that's hostile to bearing the standard of Scripture because it entices us to take a shortcut through the Scriptures we dislike and then justify it by keeping the Scriptures we prefer. Expediency causes us to claim obedience to God and doing what we deem as good as a pretext for bypassing the Scriptures that keep us from doing whatever we want. And lastly, in addition to tradition and expediency, the third influence that Macintosh considers hostile to the scriptures is rationalism, or what I call the supremacy of man's reason. Rationalism doesn't recognize scripture as man's ultimate authority, but as Macintosh points out, it presumes to sit in judgment upon the word of God to prescribe boundaries to divine inspiration, meaning scripture. In other words, when man's reason and God's word are in conflict, when we can't reconcile scripture with our own conclusions, rationalism brands scripture as the one that's defective. Rationalism believes that man's reason has no equal, and it submits itself to no one and nothing, including the word of God. We see rationalism on full display in an exchange between Yeshua and the Sadducees in Matthew chapter 22. Hoping to discredit him, they approached the master to prove by their reasoning that there would be no resurrection from the dead. So they presented Yeshua with a hypothetical scenario in which a woman had been successively married to seven brothers before each of them had died. They then devised a riddle to demonstrate their superior reasoning and catch Yeshua without an answer. Expecting to stump him with their genius, they posed the presumptuous question, Therefore, in the rising again, the resurrection, of which of the seven will she be the wife? <laughs> so, the Sadducees were implying that there's no such thing as the resurrection. Otherwise, the brothers would all be married to the same woman at the same time, implying that in the afterlife, there's either polygamy or adultery or both. But the reasoning of the Sadducees failed because they didn't take into account the reality of the word of God. 
So Yeshua silenced their rationalism with his supreme reply in verses 29 through 32. You go astray, not knowing the scriptures, nor the power of God. For in the rising again, they do not marry, nor are they given in marriage. And concerning the rising again from the dead, did you not read that which was spoken to you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. God is not a God of dead men, but of the living. So saying all this, Yeshua exposed the error in the Sadducees' reasoning. Namely, you go astray not knowing the scriptures. Their line of thinking was flawed because it was in conflict with the word of God. For example, Deuteronomy 24.3 teaches that a husband's death releases his wife from marriage. But more to the point of whether or not there's a resurrection, Yeshua turned to the scriptures for the answer. And by asserting God's present ongoing status as I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Yeshua demonstrated how God himself declares the patriarchs who died to be alive and well, therefore resurrected from the dead. So the Sadducees rendered scripture defective because they gave more weight to the reasonings of their minds rather than the scriptures they were supposed to know. Ultimately, as Yeshua indicates in his rebuke, rationalism denies the power of God. It doesn't truly believe that scripture has a divine source and therefore claims the right to ignore and subvert its authority anytime it pleases. By challenging the supremacy of scripture, rationalism tries to make the perfect, unbreakable wisdom of God appear foolish and unreasonable to men's minds. So, for example, we're submitting to the authority of rationalism rather than scripture when we defile ourselves with pornography because we think it's not really adultery or abort our unborn children because we think they're not really alive or deny basic human biology because we think feelings can alter reality or willfully expose ourselves to questionable or obscene entertainment because we think we're mature enough to handle it or fail to confront unbelievers about the consequences of their sin because we think it's better to just be nice and that they'll just see Yeshua's light in us through our being kind. So rationalism, then, is an influence that's hostile to bearing the standard of Scripture because it tells us to trust in the Scriptures only to the extent that Scripture agrees with our opinions. It causes us to take detours around God's Word in order to arrive at what we think is the correct understanding based on our own self-centered viewpoint and reasoning. As disciples of Messiah, we're under constant assault by forces that are hostile to bearing the standard of Scripture. By nature, influences such as tradition, expediency, and rationalism attack God's authority, convincing us that we need more than His perfect Word to guide us through life. Tradition tells us to sidestep Scripture because it needs the assistance of man's customs, interpretations, and institutions. Expediency tells us that as long as we have what we consider to be good intentions, we can shortcut and bypass the scriptures we dislike anytime they get in our way. And rationalism tells us 
that when man's reason conflicts with God's wisdom, we should detour around it because it's not our thinking, but the scriptures that are defective and deficient. Sometimes we're complicit with this subversion, but more often than not, we're oblivious to it. And that's why we need to bear the standard of scripture so that we'll know precisely where to look for the truth and not be misled by a million different counterfeit flags. When we bear the standard of scripture as our sole supreme authority, it empowers us to overcome the hostile influences that are speaking against it. When we set that standard up high above for all to see, we're putting those other voices in submission to the word of God so they can no longer distract us and lead us astray. Macintosh drives this point home. The fact is, we want a perfect standard, and this can only be found in a divine revelation, which, as we believe, is to be found within the covers of our most precious Bible. What a treasure! How we should bless God for it! How we should praise His name for His mercy in that He has not left us dependent upon the deceptive hope of human things, but upon the steady light of divine revelation. As standard bearers for God, we must not permit anything to stand against Scripture, to share its prominence, or to divide our attention. Every word, voice, and idea must be held in no higher regard than the Bible, nor can any be treated as its equal, nor can any be attached to it as its agent, assistant, or interpreter. As followers of Messiah, we need to recognize the influences in our lives that are hostile to Scripture, to awaken us from our days, and enable us to fix upon and follow the upraised standard of God's Word. Because if we lose our way and fail to find it, then in what other guide can we safely place our trust? What other perfect standard exists besides the Scripture? Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Biblically Correct Podcast. If you like this episode and want to see us make more, then we need your help. Visit our website at biblicallycorrectpodcast.org to support the work of Perfect Word Ministries and MJMI with your much-needed donations. And of course, don't forget to like, share, comment, subscribe, and ring the bell to receive notifications whenever a new episode is posted. If you have any questions about this teaching, or if there are any other topics you'd like to see me cover, leave me a comment or shoot me an email at kevin at perfectword.org. That's kevin at perfectword.org. Until next time, remember that every scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for refuting, for setting a right, and for instruction that is in righteousness, so that the man of God may be fully equipped, having been completed for every good act. Shalom.